Please take your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. As you turn there, I want to thank the elders. I want to thank you for allowing me some time off. I missed y'all. We come back today to chapter 14. And this is a passage that really wraps up a lot of the the themes that we have seen since chapter 12. And, And remember, this is a passage that's written to a specific church with specific concerns. And here is the Apostle Paul who speaks with full authority. And he addresses the specific issues of this church. Now it's a privilege to study the meaning and apply God's word to our lives. God's character is revealed in Paul's instructions to this particular church. So let's pick up at chapter 14. Remembering what we've read to this point, and we'll begin at verse 26. This is God's word. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only one or two, uh, one, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, Let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints... The women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things that I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. Here's the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to this passage remembering that this is your word, and we know that it is rich and full. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would attend the preaching of your word, that you would open your scriptures to us, that we might learn from you, that we too might be willing to submit underneath what you have to say, that you would give ears to your people, that we might hear what your spirit says to the church. And would you, O Father, use an ordinary, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way of salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How we worship, the ways we worship, tells us something about who God is. In, in other words, you and I don't get to select what, how we want to worship the living and true God. He tells us. We read His Word and we incorporate those elements into His worship as He has prescribed If we don't do that, then what we end up doing is picking and choosing just the elements that we seem to like the best. What a church acts like in worship 
tells you something of what they think about the God that they worship, knowingly or unknowingly. You go on a trip somewhere and you attend a a very strictly reformed church in some random town and you walk away and you go, I don't know, just felt a little bit chilly, somehow too rigid. And there's a good chance that that church might even believe that the God of the Bible is a rigid God, one who is devoid of mercy and kindness. Or the church you attend and no one even talks to you. Why do they do that? It's because they might believe that they have already arrived. There's no more need to invite other sinners into relationship. Do they believe God's distant? Well, we'll be distant too. And they're the other end of the spectrum. Another church prays with breathy sighs and moans, and they talk to God like he is their boyfriend. A young Presbyterian friend of mine poked fun at the church that I attended when I was growing up. He said, Eric, you all dim the lights, and then the show starts. I wonder if he had figured out that the church itself did, in fact, see itself as an audience, not participants. We have paid people on stage that do the worshiping for us. What's communicated? Only professionals worship God, and only on Sunday. In fact, the the, the people of this particular church may have wanted or desired for worship to be distant, for it to be a, a spectator sport. Why dim lights? Is God hidden? Should we direct our eyes to the stage and fix our eyes to the professionals? And why do I and the crowd somehow feel better when the lights are dim so I can get over myself and not feel noticed? How we worship, what we do in worship, tells us something about the God that we supposedly serve. Does your worship communicate that you have come to meet with a holy God? One who with tenderness and loving kindness reaches out to sinners to draw them into relationship through Christ. So chapter 14 teaches us that Christian worship testifies to the God we serve. Now the text before us is really Paul's conclusion of a really long general principle. Along the way, he's taken application directly to the issues of Corinth. Chapter 11, an issue of authority. And it was evidenced in this problem of head coverings. And then a problem with self-centeredness. Evidenced in the Lord's Supper. And then chapter 12, a problem with pride. Evidenced in spiritual gifts. And then a problem with self-exaltation. Chapter 13, the passage on love. It's a a problem of failing to love. Evidenced in the way that people use their spiritual gifts. A desire to be noticed in worship. Evidenced in the misuse of tongues and prophecy. That's what the start of chapter 14 was about. And so when you pick up in a passage like this and you arrive and you say, I've never heard any of this, you think, this is entirely random. But in context, Paul is making this broad argument about God's authority in his church and his reign over it all. And he says, this is what order would look like. And he lays out three comments to tell us that everything in worship must evidence the character of God. We'll call it the principle of worship, the principle of women, the principle of the word. We'll start with the principle of worship. Now, in learning to to interpret the Bible, this particular distinction is essential. 
what is prescriptive and what is descriptive. This is where truth is found or lost. When the interpretive key is misunderstood, you end up with small groups of the church practicing crazy things like polygamy and chattel slavery and communal living and socialism. All because folks can't tell the difference in the scripture between prescriptive and descriptive. Look at verse 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Two weeks ago, in verses 1 through 25, we saw Paul correct this issue of unintelligible tongues. And he says there can be no such thing in worship as some incessant babbling without meaning and without interpretation. And now he says there's got to be order in worship. Is verse 26 prescriptive or descriptive? Is he saying each person in the congregation needs to bring a hymn, a revelation, a known foreign language, and an interpretation? Or is he saying that's what's currently happening in your church? If this is prescriptive, then there is no command for reading the scriptures. There's no command to pray. There's no command to take the Lord's Supper. I'm convinced this is descriptive. Descriptive of what's going on in the church. And Paul says, if that is so, then you need to repeat the test that I talked to you about previously. Is your worship currently building up and edifying the body of Christ? This is followed by instructions to help God's people in Corinth think through what it might look like for their worship to reflect the God that they serve. Take a look at verse 27. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what's said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. If you've been with us over the past several weeks, you've heard a very broad definition of the term prophecy. And then you've also heard a a pretty narrow definition of the term tongues. I want to recap that quickly before we move to this term revelation, which he uses. When Paul talks about prophecy, he is talking about words spoken about God or Christ or his kingdom. And so to prophesy, as I've said, is to speak these rich, wonderful truths concerning Jesus and his gospel. And and it is to bring that comfort that is found in Christ to God's people. It often contains scriptural encouragements. What I'm doing right now, preaching, is exercising the gift of prophecy. But you might also exercise that gift. You say you talk to a friend who is grieving the death of a loved one. Matthew chapter 5, you say, don't you remember Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Friend, there's a day when Jesus promises that your soul will be deeply comforted. Or speaking to that same person, you consider 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where God calls himself the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. And you say, friend, the Lord will comfort your heart, and I'm so sorry. It sounds like just encouragement, doesn't it? The Bible says that's prophecy. Speech meant to build up the church. Now, tongues has a much more narrow sense than people think today. In the Bible, tongues are always a specific language. 
And there are times that the Lord gifts His people throughout the history of the church to speak languages that they have not known in order that the gospel might go to people groups who have not heard it so that Christ could be borne witness of in places where no one knows the language. That's why in Acts chapter 2, verse 6, the people who heard the tongues at Pentecost are hearing the gospel in their own language. In the Bible, the gift of tongues is never incessant babbling, and it is never a secret prayer language just between me and God. Chapter 14 makes clear that if you are going to use the gift of tongues in worship, For the sake of believers, then there has to be someone there present to translate it, and it has to be understandable. Now, what is revelation? That's a word we haven't exactly encountered yet. In the first 20 years of the church, from the time that Christ rose from the dead, there was no such thing as what you and I call the New Testament. Paul writes this particular letter in about 53 A.D., The Gospel of Mark, which is really the earliest gospel to be written, is produced somewhere between 55 and 54 A.D. Therefore, what Jesus taught to his apostles was was the very substance of what was being taught in the churches. In fact, that's all the substance of new revelation that the church had. Those who followed Christ had access to the Old Testament scriptures. But you also remember Luke chapter 24, don't you? Jesus appears to two of his disciples after he has risen from the dead, and those disciples are marching to a place called Emmaus. And Luke tells us that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. This is profound. Jesus walked through the Old Testament and revealed how all of these things pointed to him Which is why the New Testament writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, James, they all write this centrally cohesive doctrine that fits together beautifully. In Corinth, what God revealed to the people in worship through His Spirit in prophetic revelation was substantively the same as what you have sitting in your lap. It's substantively the same as the Scriptures that you hold. Friends, the temptation in every single age and every human heart is to hope that God will reveal to me something personally which is utterly new that no one else has ever had, previously unknown. And why is that tempting? Because it will make me feel special. And here's where the modern Pentecostal theology runs counter to the rest of church history. At the very close of the New Testament canon scripture, there is no new information to be revealed about Christ having fulfilled the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, the whole thing is pointing to Jesus. And when people say, I got something new and it's about my Ford Explorer, or it's about my beach house, the Lord's called me to go purchase Which direction are we looking? We're looking so far away from Jesus that it is evident that it does not come from Almighty God. John Owen said, if private revelations agree with the Scriptures, they are needless. If they disagree, they are false. 
Everything you must believe for salvation and everything you need to know in order to, how to, in order to live as redeemed people was included in God's written word, both New Testament and Old. And although it manifests itself differently today than it did in Corinth, the heart condition is the same. There is something in us that desires to step forward and be noticed and interrupt and be heard. Look at verse 31. Because the real issue here is not tongues or prophecy or revelation. The key issue is this. Does this worship testify to the character of the God you serve? Verse 31. For you can all prophesy one by one. So that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but, is, but of peace. You get a sense in the worship of Corinth that people are popping up there in the service and they're competing with each other so that they can be the one to deliver a word of prophecy. And this person presumes that their word is more important than that person's. Paul says there's no such thing as an uncontrollable spouting of the Holy Spirit in worship. If you have a word for the body of Christ, then you are fully capable of holding it until someone else has already spoken. There is time to share. And then he annexes a reason to it. What's the reason why I can hold my mouth shut? He says, because God is a God of peace, not of confusion. Don't blame the Holy Spirit if your worship devolves into a mass of of competition and confusion with with people who think they're hyper-spiritual principle of worship your worship must reflect the character of this god of peace in corinth it was spiritual gifts that were the problem i wonder if it's possible at christ's prayers to come and never speak out of turn and yet still internally battle the peace that god's character demands is it possible to come into worship and carry a a rivalry A competition, a pride that says, I will not come under his word. I won't come under the instructions of the elders. Is there something in us, in our heart, that refuses to reflect the peace that the gospel commands? In Corinth, they were so busy staring at themselves, so busy at staring at each other, that they lost the concept of the peace, which is one vertically and horizontally by the Christ. Christian worship testifies to the God we serve. To what does your heart testify? To the peace of Christ or to the confusion of your flesh? The principle of worship, now let's examine the principle of women. Let's pick up at the midpoint of verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it's shameful for a woman to speak in church. Uh, There's just a lot of writing on this particular passage, both scholarly and not scholarly, in hopes of rescuing Paul from himself. And some people will begin with this concept, well, that's Paul... Speaking consistently with his day, after all, the Jews mistreated women. Pagans severely mistreated women. That's just Paul. Being a first century man, we should expect nothing less. Others will try to take Paul and separate him from Jesus, and they'll say, well, I prefer the Christianity of Jesus, but not really the Christianity of Paul. 
Why should we handle this text any differently than every other passage we've handled in the Bible? Let's figure out what God says to his church at Corinth and then figure out how it applies to us personally. This is the word of God. What does it mean? How can we apply it today? Well, if you've been with us through the book of 1 Corinthians so far, you recognize that this statement is really not out of nowhere. In fact, this doesn't say something that's radically different from what Paul has already said. That's why context is king. Previous chapters tell us that there is a massive misuse of spiritual gifts in the church in Corinth. There's also a massive misunderstanding of genders and their roles in the church at Corinth. Not because the church is more oppressive than the culture, but because precisely the opposite is true. The Christian faith is so radically more freeing to females than any religion that has ever existed. And so first century believers are going, what do we do? Paganism has always oppressed women. Because they begin and end with the wisdom of the world which desires to please men. They do not begin with a God who gives his own life to redeem sinners of gender male and gender female. Let's be super clear. Christianity elevates women to a place of dignity that the pagan world has never even once considered. In fact, in the kingdom of Jesus, women are given a seat at the table, a place of honor and dignity and respect. And chapter 11 taught us that God designed something beautiful in genders. And it is to be celebrated. And Paul said, let men be men and let women be women. And from chapter 11 to chapter 14, there's been these constant arrows that are pointing back to Genesis chapter 2. God's beautiful creation design that wasn't really about the man and woman, but was about God and his intended authority that he created. Because even the creation says something about the order of the God who made it. God created man from the dust and woman from man and males and females function in God-honoring ways when they are interdependent upon one another. In the home, the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And in the church, God calls men to step forward and lead. Why does he have to say this? Because men in their fallen state will abdicate God-given responsibility if somebody else will do it for them. All of chapter 14 has been interpreted, has been about interpreting the prophetic word in the context of worship. Who has the right to stand up and interpret the word of Scripture? And Paul says men need to lead in that way in the church. Chapter 14 is about public Worship. How's that different from chapter 11? Because earlier in chapter 11, Paul clearly indicates that women should pray and they should prophesy. No closed mouths over there. They should be praying. They should be offering words of encouragement about God and Christ and His kingdom. But chapter 11 isn't about public worship. And so when you take the New Testament as a whole and you find chapter 14 as a portion of that, you see this beautiful picture of men and women working together in the church. Women doing ministry of all kinds, even teaching. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 18. 
There's a woman named Priscilla who comes with her husband Aquila and they pull aside this man named Apollos who's a really gifted teacher and they tell him by private instruction about, says the scriptures, the way of God more accurately. Priscilla didn't stand up and worship and say, Apollos, that's crazy. She went with her husband and they pulled this man aside and they said, we need to help you connect the dots between the Old Testament and Christ. I have learned countless biblical Christ-centered truths from women. And so have most of you. Look at verse 33. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. The historical interpretation of the church fathers immediately after the Apostle Paul is this. Women do not preach or teach in worship. They might do some of those things in other contexts, depending on their spiritual gifts, but they don't preach or teach in public worship because worship reflects this authority structure that God has designed in creation. And that authority structure was meant to glorify Him. So I'm calling this thing a principle of women. But it's really a principle about about creation design. The church, like the Christian home, provides a context for men to lovingly serve and lead. This has nothing to do with worth. It has everything to do with functional roles. Verse 35. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Worship at Corinth has become loose and chaotic. People talking over each other and somebody begins to chatter in a foreign language and somebody over there tries to interpret and at the same time another person pops up and thinks I've got a new word from God that I need to give. Paul says you can wait. And both men and women have actually been involved in the chaos. In the midst of that chaos, God says men... You need to step up and you need to lead. Because what he's describing is actually shameful. And the word shameful is actually worse. If we're trying to rescue Paul from himself, it's worse than shameful. The Bible says it's ugly and deformed. Let's be clear. Is he saying that it's ugly and deformed for women to speak? Nope. Is he saying it's ugly and deformed for women to speak at church? Nope. He says it's ugly and deformed for men to abdicate and for women to take the lead in preaching and teaching in public worship. And people read this in 2021 and they go, oh my goodness. A woman has to go to her husband to ask all her biblical questions. Paul would say, would you please flip the coin over and read the other side? In my day, only men talk about spiritual things. In Corinth, a pagan man doesn't include his wife in anything intellectual, let alone spiritual. And the Jewish men of his day, they don't really even believe women can learn. Jesus and the Apostle Paul transform the Christian home. The Bible encourages 
in the Christian home, these gospel-centered, Christ-exalting conversations inside the house so that iron sharpens iron. A woman doesn't have to run down to the well and talk to her girlfriends to figure out spiritual things. Paul says, husbands, include your wife as a part of this conversation. And likewise, when men abdicate, it fails to reflect God's creation design. And women have to go and fill their spot both in the home and in the church. Christian worship testifies to the God we serve. So we have the principle of worship, the principle of women. We close with the principle of the word. Look at verse 36. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Now, this is, these are really powerful words to people who thought a lot of their own spirituality. To people who have, have, in a sense, redefined what it means to be spiritual. Paul says you're not the only church in the world. You're not the only ones who have received the word of God. And so what you're doing in worship is chaos and confusion, and it doesn't fit and it doesn't reflect the character of God. Isn't it ironic that the Apostle Paul writes with his own pen to say, I'm writing the word of God. Friends, when you read this, you need to say, God is saying through the Apostle Paul, when my servant Paul writes, it has all of the authority of the Old Testament and every other God-breathed word of Scripture. My character reflects order. The order begins with God and it's evident in creation and it moves through Christ over His church and through the mouths of the apostles in planting and building churches. And then His character of order runs through the qualified men who preach and lead in the church and it runs down into the Christian home where the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church. In Corinth, they think they're spiritual. But God says, truly spiritual people recognize my word as the authority over their lives. If anyone doesn't recognize that, he should not be recognized as a deeply spiritual person. I wonder if you hear the the subtle test to which Paul alludes. Are you a fairly mature Christian? A fairly spiritual person? God says, to the degree that you submit to my word as the authority over you, to that degree your maturity or lack thereof is proven or exposed. If I consider that fact, I'm actually laid bare. I'm not nearly as spiritually minded as I thought I was. Not nearly as mature as I try to pretend. And God says that's the place where you begin to grow. Christ have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm not who I thought I was. These saints in Corinth are about to grow by leaps and bounds. That's evident in 2 Corinthians. And that transformation only happens because the Word of God becomes the ultimate authority and final authority over all things in the church. And this letter, you remember, is Paul's response to a letter that they wrote to him. They wrote questioning him about tongues and authority. 
and about what it means to be spiritual. And so Paul here at the end of chapter 14 wraps up his point. Every spiritual gift must build up the church in order to reflect the character of the God who's actively building up his church. And every expression of worship must be done decently and in order to reflect God's character of order and authority. Quite beautifully, where you might expect this tension to break fellowship, the Apostle Paul says in verse 39, So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. The Apostle places a premium on the prophetic word. You may speak in tongues if it's intelligible and interpretable. I want to express to you why the principle of the word is a comfort to you and to me. It's actually the reason we value the Bible so much here. You may not like everything you hear from this pulpit. You may not like it from me and you may not like it from anybody else who ever fills in for me. You have the Word of God in your lap and you can take it and compare it with the other Scriptures. And so if I preach or someone else preaches in this pulpit, you don't simply take the Word for what is said. You take the Word and you compare it with the rest of that which is written. And where God's Word spoken fits with God's Word written, you say, that's my authority. I will make my life decisions based on God's written word. Acts chapter 17, Paul and Silas enter the synagogue in a place called Berea. And they preach the gospel and the Jews there, says Luke, receive the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 20 Paul says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. You see, Christian worship testifies to the God we serve. His authority is the subject of this text. He reigns over worship. He reigns over women and men. And he reigns over his word. Let's pray.